Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the My OT Journey podcast. My name is Michael Roth, and today I'm joined by Tipa Snow. Tipa is a licensed occupational therapist, fellow of the American Occupational Therapy Association, and this is from her website, a leading trainer and consultant who helps communities, agencies, organizations, professionals, families, and individuals develop awareness, knowledge, and skills needed to better support and care for someone living with the brain changes of dementia. And this is someone who practices what she preaches. In her capacity as owner and CEO of Positive Approach, she has over 40 employees or independent contractors across the U.S. and Canada sharing her vision. I hope you enjoy the podcast with Tiba Snow. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tiba. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So uh, before I get into all of the incredible work that you're doing with uh, the Positive Approach to Care, or PAC, um, the My OT Journey podcast, in my mind, is about your journey to occupational therapy, uh, how you got to where you are and the experiences that made you the occupational therapist that you are. Um, and I wanted to start from the very beginning. Can you give me any of... Uh, a little bit of insight into your experiences growing up in West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, um, and maybe share some experiences that you had with family members or friends that transformed you into the occupational therapist that you are today, even though you may not have known it at the time. Yeah, I for sure didn't know about OT. It was only after I was one that I went back and found out that in high school, it was the strongest career match. <laughs> which was an interesting finding. It was like, huh, isn't that interesting? I never knew that. Uh, so when I was a kid, my grandfather moved in, and the reason he moved in was because my grandmother had passed, and he unfortunately was starting to have issues. And at the time, we said eccentric, um, senile, but now looking back, he was developing vascular dementia due to black lung uh, disease that he developed from working in the coal mines. Uh, and my mom was probably not one of those great caregivers. She was a phys ed teacher, uh, very skillful, very uh, craft-oriented, outdoor-oriented, taught me amazing number of things. So now that I'm an OT, I would say, ah, yes, I got a lot of my hands-on skill in how to try things, do things, practice things, restore abilities, and she was left-handed. So I was already learning how to compensate because I'm right-handed. Um, so I had to learn how to do things from the opposite side. <laughs> and then I helped take care of my grandfather, um, some because she was not good at that and I was better at it. Uh, and then I worked with kids with developmental disabilities uh, when I was a teenager uh, and actually was contemplating going into special ed or maybe into medicine, wasn't sure. Uh, ended up going to Duke and um, again was a NA before there was a CNA for certified assistant. So again, learning more hands-on skills, lots more physical assist kinds of things. And then I got an undergraduate degree in zoology, uh, which is about the time you realize, uh-oh, 
there's not a lot you can do with an undergraduate degree mm -hmm. in poetry. As somebody who has an undergraduate degree in English literature, I can a hundred percent attest that sometimes our bachelors aren't where we end up working. <laughs> Definitely not. And so. Uh, I had five majors before my mother said, you will pay for the next semester if you do not graduate on time. And so that's how zoology happened. Um, and then I took a couple years off because it was like, okay, now what do I want to do? And so I explored some options and was working at a day center that served people who had developmental disabilities, uh, children with developmental disabilities, and adults with dementia and sort of learned a lot of things and became then a full-time employee there. And an OT came to assess a young woman with swallowing problems who had spastic athetoid cerebral palsy and was a good friend and a young person that spent her free time with me. I babysat as well as um, having her at the center. And um, as a teenager, she enjoyed time with a younger person rather than her family. And um, the OT school at UNC was just starting, and she said, oh, you should apply. So I did, and I got in, and the rest is, I guess, history. I, I want to know what that was like. First, first I think I want to go back to uh, zoology. Have you always enjoyed animals? Is that why you were drawn to that kind of uh, field? Or was it really just uh, your mother, Dora, saying, you know, you have to pick something. I think you'd be good at this. Just pick this. Yeah, no. Um, she didn't actually care. I had German, I had psychology, I had uh, English lit, I had exercise physiology, and she just said pick a major and finish. And so if I took four zoology courses and a coaching track in secondary uh, baseball, I could graduate on time. And so one of the, I did tend towards science courses, but it was really, I needed the courses and Zoe was the one thing I could do in that semester that was left that would graduate <laughs> me on time. <laughs> That's the honest answer. <laughs> no, and, and I appreciate that answer because I think this leads up to, I've, I've done a couple of interviews so far for the uh, OT Journey podcast, and what it sounds like is a lot of OTs come from really eclectic backgrounds. They have a lot of experience behind them. They've tried a lot of different things. How do you think your, you know, liberal, liberal arts almost education uh, has impacted your work as an occupational therapist? Yeah. Yeah, my phrase is usually I, I became educated at Duke, but I got my career at UNC because my undergraduate degree at Duke really did uh, teach me to think in a, so many different and variable ways. And the master's program at UNC was really where I honed in and became that became my career, although I had no idea ahead of time that that would actually end up that way. Um, and I think I've always been somewhat of a generalist, but I'm a generalist who is a specialist these days, which is an interesting combination. I think that's such an important point to make because one of the audiences that we focus on on the MyOT Journey podcast is people who are looking into occupational therapy as a career. And I think it's important to emphasize the fact that it's okay to go and get your undergraduate degree and do something that excites you and inspires you and gives you a wealth of experiences because that's going to really help you be a generalist occupational therapist and be creative. Uh, so it's, it's nice to hear that echoed in so many people, including yourself. 
Yeah, so I would also say the other cool thing is um, it's not all about the academic background. I think some of the things that I've uh, certainly loved doing is the um, working with different uh, individuals and populations and people from other cultures and people from various religions, which was part of my uh, background in Western Pennsylvania is it's really a melting pot. So the cool part is if you hang out with the right people, you get to meet people from, I would say, 40 to 50 different cultures and 40 to 50 different faiths and religions. And that also, um, for me, was a key piece in making me sort of this thinker and doer that I am. And was it was it your mother that kind of uh, raised you to become such? Because looking at your bio, you as a teenager volunteered, as you said, to work with children with various disabilities. Yeah. Uh, you worked as a nursing assistant, volunteering at hospitals, at day centers. Do you think that was her that kind of like pushed you along that path, or do you think that's something that's always been? Oh, good heavens, you? no. <laughs> Oh, good heavens, no. She was like, you're going to work with old people? I mean, I know, oh, but they drool. I know my mother was, as I said, she was not the caregiver, and she didn't like sick people. She never liked to be around people um, who were not well. But she really liked being around people who were different. And so it was an interesting sort of split, but she would encourage all kinds of exploration of trying things, going different places. Uh, I spent a summer in Europe living with a family who spoke only German because she thought it would be a good experience for me. Um, so her way of being supportive was to shove you off a ledge and hope you could swim. Um, and finding out that usually I did, um, but I was also pretty much a risk taker. So it worked out well. The desire to be in a helping profession was not necessarily where, are you, tell me you're not going into teaching or something like that because you don't, I mean, she just really wanted it to be different than it was. But then at one point she said, you know, you're really good at this. I, you know, I think it worked out okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that, that you're, almost risk-taking spirit really carried over because you you went into the inaugural class at the University of uh, NC in Chapel Hill. Uh, What was that like being the first class, the first OT class to graduate? Uh, I was actually the first graduate. The first year, I I think I was the only one that graduated, quote unquote, on time. Wow. Um, So it was a it was, yeah, because it was, we were in a trailer, there was a lot of learning as you went kind of thing. Um, it was a great faculty. I mean, it really was. And I think I really enjoyed it. And we had a lot of mature learners, um, people who had had a career path other than occupational therapy and were coming back to it. And then we had a few very young learners who were just coming out of um, out of college and we're coming into graduate school immediately after college. Um, And so we were an interesting little mix. Uh, And it was a great group to be with. They were certainly diverse uh, from all over the place. And um, it was an interesting experience and a good experience. It was hard work, obviously. But uh, at the time, I was living in Durham and would ride my motorcycle over every day because it was cheaper to park on campus with a motorcycle than it was to drive a motor vehicle by so cool. <laughs> $20 and $200. So, you know, I was paying for my graduate degree and it was like, yeah, it'll be the motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and speaking of the incredible faculty that you had, tell me a little bit about uh, Joan Rogers. I, I know that doing my research that she was the first one that had you at public speaking. How do you think her impact on you, you know, kind of made you into the the incredible groundbreaking OT you are today? Yeah, well, we, Joan was this amazing woman. Um, and her specialty was geriatrics. So not only did she have me do my first speaking gig, she had me housed in a nursing home to do a study on food and eating for people living in institutions. Um, and so I, I was there. It was like, how could she talk me into all this stuff? So uh, Joan really was a pioneer in many ways. And out of Southern California, um, also out of Illinois, Champaign, Illinois. And so she had incredible brilliance and was very much committed to us performing at maximum capacity. So she would push you just as far as you could. So. My first talk ever was in front of like, it was at the San Antonio Con OT, AOTA conference and there were over like 500 people in the audience and I had a presentation that we had practiced that was going to take me like 15, maybe 20 minutes to deliver. I was done in 10 <laughs> I talked as fast. Um, but once you get through that, then anything else is a piece of cake as they say. I give you a lot of credit because I still get nervous doing podcast interviews with one person. So. <laughs> I know when you look out and you just can see all these faces and you just think, ah. <laughs> so you took this, you know, this is now the second, you know, third, fourth leap of faith that you've taken uh, and risk that you've taken. Now you graduate occupational therapy school and go into the great unknown of the profession. What What's the next step for you? So I became one of the very first OTs, both in a home care uh, arena in North Carolina back in the day, and also a part-time OT in a retirement community that had just opened. Um, because they only wanted a part-time OT, although they had a full-time PT. Uh, and they had never had one before. And so I'm doing part-time there, part-time there, and I'm driving to South Carolina to work at the Hitchcock Center, which is where I had done my last neuroaffiliation, um, which involved home care and outpatient clinic and pediatrics and geriatrics and hospital consults and hand splints and um, just about as varied as you can do it. Uh, so I did that uh, while I did these other part-time things because they were all part-time bits at the mm. time with my new degree. And do, you, and do you think that having all of those part-time experiences benefited you as an occupational therapist because you got to see a wide range of things? Or do you wish that you had just one study? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm really glad I did that. I mean, that um, it was huge for me because I really enjoy um, figuring things out, trying things out, seeing something in one place and figuring out, does it apply over here or is that very different? Um, so for me, that kind of flexibility and opportunity makes a big difference. But it was enough of each thing that I became, I think, more skillful in a variety of places and ways. And it kept my windows and doors open for what else might come up, what else is possible. And it mm -hmm. turned out one of the next things that became possible was the program on aging position, which again, Joan was, you know, they've got this position. They just started the program on aging. I think you should come back up here and apply for this. And it's like, 
for the medical school position? Yeah, yeah, I think you're. I think it'll be good. And it's like, oh, all right. Well, <laughs> among other things. So that <laughs> never shy about, about pushing someone forward is Joan Roger. Well, that's good. Yeah, because because you definitely got propelled forward you, with your with your career. Tell me about what it was like. Tell me about that experience and going back and, you know, taking on that big responsibility, that big job. Yeah. So we were one of the first teaching nursing home um, opportunities, and it was the medical school's uh, beginning part of looking at aging. And so we had an internal medicine physician, a family practice doc, uh, a nurse, and a social worker. And they weren't sure they had one more position for hire. And they weren't exactly sure what they were going to do with it. And there were a variety of disciplines that were looking to fill that slot. And uh, Joan and I convinced them that an occupational therapist was what they needed um, for that position. And sure enough, I got the position. And it was a terrific team. Um, We worked with medical students, residents, interns. We worked uh, some with the OT students nursing students, and we became um, an outpatient clinic. We did a geriatric outpatient clinic. Uh, We consulted in the hospital, uh, and we actually, as part of that group, worked with the state of North Carolina, and we together initiated the CAP Medicaid waiver program in North Carolina and trained personnel on how to assess for and come up with care plans for people who qualified. That's incredible. And do you think from that, was it from that geriatric clinic experience that you started working with bigger organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, or was that just something you were personally doing? No, that actually happened after that. Um, I started doing training with, in North Carolina, they're called AHAC in South Carolina. It's Area Health Education Centers. Because there are a few large population centers in the state, and then everything else is pretty rural, um, the medical school and the health professions decided that we have to take what's available at these places and spread it around the state. And so um, we became the AHEC educators. And so it was continuing ed through the School of Nursing, School of Medicine, and we would go around the state and offer continuing ed opportunities. And as we did it individually, then we started doing it as a team. And then I particularly became partnered with Ellie McConnell, who is a gerontological nurse and now is um, the gerontological lead at Duke. And I started doing a lot of continuing ed and outreach. And from there, I met many other folks, including um, the director of the Alzheimer's Association came to a continuing ed program that we did and saw the work that I did and asked me to come and present. And that's how that transition sort of started. And one of the things that I found so interesting as I was researching for the, you know, this interview um, was that you really, you really, it seems like you really dig into everything that you're going for. Uh, with the Alzheimer's Association, you left your mark with the CARES program. Uh, I did, I, one of the things that I really wanted to touch on in the interview, though, is just something that I was personally curious, curious about is in my geriatric coursework, we had a gerontology course, we learned about uh, the GDS scale for dementia, so the seven stages of global deterioration. We learned about the adapted fast scale, about, you know, Formage, about the the slums. Um, But 
you developed a new model uh, for understanding dementia, the GEM states model. And I was wondering whether or not you could discuss first why you felt the GEM state model better represents the stages of dementia and uh, how it answers some of the limitations of those those different scales that OT schools are still teaching. Yeah. So one of the challenges, particularly with global deterioration, it was designed by a physician to try to address Alzheimer's disease. And it was specifically designed for Alzheimer's. And it was designed by a physician who saw people for brief periods of time in an office setting and was asking questions, not really working with, living with, or trying to discern, well, what abilities does the person still have? Uh, what kind of cueing or modification can be helpful? And I found it to be not useful and frequently not even accurate about because it was based on this Alzheimer's model. And it's turning out uh, as we do more and more work in the field that Alzheimer's is one of the players, but it's certainly not the only dementia, and it's not the primary one that many people have. And so we need to you know, take a step back and, and get a little broader in our thinking. So with my OT background, the thing that seemed to resonate fairly well if we were looking for something to help people better appreciate what can people do and what can't they do and what kind of environment support and what kind of um, cues or, or assist might they benefit from or task modification. Um, the Allen scale seemed to make more sense to me. So I started working with the Allen scale, but the problem is just like any of these things, we're testing in a moment in time and for most conditions, people are static or stable unless something else changes for a period of time. So with the Allen scale, for instance, people can say, you know, well, they're probably safe to stay at home as long as uh, the stove is turned off and they know how to use the microwave and we've rehearsed how to use the microwave, well, then they'll be good until such time as something happens or they don't take their medicines or whatever. In dementia, however, it's an ever-moving target because dementia is not a static state. It has chemical and it has structural changes in the brain. So what I could do five minutes ago, I might not be able to do now. Um, and so there's no staging. So this whole idea of levels or staging is an artificial thing that people have created. In fact, at any day, you may see me go up and down through a variety of ability states. And so I was really interested in the idea of dynamic assessment and that some would be in a GEM state. They would be at a certain state. And I picked GEMs because I was looking for something that was common language that had value and that we see people living with dementia as having incredible value. And they're not less because they have dementia. They're different. And every diamond is different, every piece of amber is different, every ruby is different, just like every human is different, but they have characteristics in common in that moment. Um, so for instance, amber is something that's like sap and something gets stuck in the sap and it may harden up, but it's something caught in a moment of time. And so it's the yellow light in that it's caution because they have none. And they're all very sensory driven. When someone's in an amber state, they're either in, they want to have sensory needs or they have sensory intolerance or some kind of combo. And it's only in that moment. So if we're wanting to do something and they're not wanting to do it, back off, give them another experience, and then try it again later to see if it's a permanent dislike of that sensation or just a momentary. 
Mm. And so that's an example. Yeah. It's it's such a great model. I feel like just doing the research and listening to you speak about this for four minutes, I know more about dementia and understanding it than you know I might have learned in two weeks of a course. Uh, if if occupational therapists or OT students wanted to learn more about the model, where would they go? Uh, our website, we have, even though we have a very quick little YouTube video that people, I mean, we have a lot of free access stuff. Um, we also have on our website more in-depth videos about the GEM state model um, because we're starting to see it used and it's being tested out and tried in psychiatric settings, in VA medical center settings, in hospital settings, and in emergency settings because we're trying to figure out how do we help people help more effective? How do we help set up environments and tasks that are going to be more successful and less frustrating for everybody? Hmm. And so there's stuff on the website is the best I can say. There's lots of things. And if you're interested, come to an Ask Tifa anything on a Wednesday night once a month and ask your questions. Wonderful. And that's uh, www.tipasnow.com, right? Yeah, it is. All right, wonderful. And before we go, my last question, I think, is just for students, occupational therapists, uh, or just regular caregivers, what piece of advice would you give them uh, for when they're trying to provide care for somebody with dementia? If it's not working, pause and take a step back because continuing to do something that's not working is just going to increase the resistance. And one thing that people living with dementia can usually hold on to is whether they like you or they don't. And if you leave someone disliking you, you increase the risk the next time you come back, they won't want to be with you. So if all else fails, say, I'm sorry, I was trying to help. Thank you for trying to work with me. I really appreciate it. And whether you do it with words or with actions, take a step back and then go get some help to figure out, okay, so this is what I was trying to do. What do you think might have been going on there? Rather than trying to push an agenda that's not working for either of you. Because mm. it's time to quit blaming people living with dementia for having brain failure. Mm, that's that's so good. You know, preserve that therapeutic relationship. Well, it, this was definitely an enjoyable conversation for me. I'm sure that all of our listeners will enjoy it equally as much. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for letting me talk about myself. Of course, of course. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!